How are you doing there? Just a quickie before we start. On the Apple podcast, why don't you double click on David McWilliams Plus? It's right there when you open the podcast. You get ad free, you unlock early access. Just double click and away you go. David McWilliams Plus, you get this pure and simple. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast. I hope life is well. You're actually embracing the Christmas spirit, John. I know that this is something that you, John Always. is one of the great lovers of Christmas. <laughs> well, now, uh, how was your week, Ed? Uh, it was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't bad at all. Are you, how is the, again, this is the organ recital part of the podcast where John talks about his various organs and his ailments. How are your organs, John? Well, it's good. Let me tell you, I went to uh, the specialist during the yeah. week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The knee guy. The knee guy. The knee guy. It was and your Ned a while ago. Now it's oh, your yes, knee. My knee. Yeah, yeah. I'm working through the various bits of my body. Yeah. Or they're working through me. So I went in, let me tell you this. I went in to the orthopedic department of the Beacon Hospital. Of course you did. And I walked in and I was seeing the specialist, lovely man right, by the name okay. of Khalid Morgami. Okay. And there I was sitting down there and he's going through stuff and then he, he's filling out charts and stuff and he says to me, uh, and, and wh- what, what do you do, John? And I said, uh, I'm an audio producer. Oh, I produce podcasts. Oh, right, yeah, really? Uh, what podcast do you produce? And I said, oh, well, a bunch of podcasts for various different companies. But I suppose the main one is the David Mac Williams podcast. And I didn't even finish that sentence. And he goes, what? what? You're John? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And then he says to me, he was cracking up laughing. He couldn't stop laughing. And This uh, is Khalid, the knee surgeon. <laughs> Doug, how are you, Khalid? <laughs> Go on. And, uh, and he gets on the phone, he rings his mate, uh, the other surgeon upstairs, no. Maurice, and he comes down. I but love he was it. saying to me, so I was listening to the podcast a couple of weeks ago when you were banging on about your, your knee again, <laughs> as I do, yes. about your meniscus. And he said, I was in the car park listening to that. And I thought to myself, 
She said, I wonder now who's going to work on that for him. <laughs> and it's him. Here you are. <laughs> That's fantastic. That is fantastic. So, so uh, Khalid is going to carve open my knee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're, Roy, you're, you're Roy Keane. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and away we go. Well, Khalid, just I hope he's a steady just, hand. Just, just <laughs> go for a few pints the night before, okay? Have the shakes. <laughs> yeah. So, Khalid, a big shout out. Thank you for looking after John. Because, But don't look after him too well because the organ recital is part of our whole thing, okay? As we get. Oh, don't worry, Mac. Don't worry, Mac. There'll be something, There'll be something else. else. There'll be something else. Well, John, I hope that Khalid is competent because we know that the world of Irish sports will be bereft of a champion if your knee doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of competence, though, John, this podcast is going to be about the end of competence. Whether or not this year, 2022, will be remembered as a pivotal year in the world, but we're going to look at a very specific idea, which is the end of competence. Central banking competence, political competence, strategic competence. That basically, it's the year that has exposed things yeah. and exposed people. Mm. Well... I'll keep you updated on my knee in the meantime, but tell us, what was what was your week like? Well, I'll tell you, my week was interesting. First of all, Lucy played in yes, the Olympia. I, I didn't make I, that. I gave we both done. Played yes, in the Olympia, indeed. exactly. Take that box. It was absolutely fantastic. She was sporting inhaler. Yeah. So inhaler, I have a huge fan base. And it was brilliant. The band stayed here for the week. They're all sweethearts. She's putting you know together the whole thing. Whole, the yeah. Whole, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So there's, there's Danny from Aldergrove, North Belfast, right? right? North of Belfast. There's Seb from London via Brooklyn, New York. Right. And there's Victor from Denmark. Okay, right. there's an international band. And then Lucy, right? But it was great. They were brilliant. I mean, of course, I would say they'd dabble. Of course, of course. But, but I've no doubt they were but brilliant. But it was, it was just really, really good. You know, you, to go on stage, you know, a thousand people, it's a big, big venue. Yeah. And, Especially uh, hometown one hometown as well. Hometown venue as well. And adds also, a little bit of edge And also when you're it. supporting, it's very difficult because they're, they're not your gang. Like, they're coming to see another band. It's yes, always a, that's right. Supporting yeah, yeah. is a very, very difficult thing to do because they're not your fans. Yeah. You're kind of... And lots of fans are like, all right, come on. Where's, yeah, the, where's yeah, the main yeah. act coming on? Yeah, yeah. So you really have to... And they're just coming in from the bar and that kind of all stuff. All that sort of stuff. Yeah. So that was that was really good. And then, of course, that was, that was Wednesday and Thursday. But between that, I was down in Limerick, John. I haven't been in Limerick for ages. I've always had a soft spot for Limerick and I could never understand you know, all the propaganda against Limerick. Because architecturally, Limerick is beautiful. Mm. You walk around, it's a totally Georgian city, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. It's really, and it's really well laid out. You have the Shannon, huge, big estuary. And the other morning, I was giving a talk in a place called The Engine, which is a, a sort of a, it's a really, it's a new startup venue in Limerick for, for local companies. It's part of the university. It's not part of the university. Okay. It's, it's right in the centre of the city. Anyway, I was giving a chat and... But it was an early morning chat. So I was up at about seven o'clock walking around the city. And I just thought, wow, this is a city that has got so much potential, really has so much potential. It's got the airports right beside it. It's got the countryside at Clare and all that yeah. beautiful part of the country. But the city itself is so almost like, you know, small cities can actually have their own ecosystem. They yeah. have their own personality, their own economy, and they work extremely well. And I was thinking Limerick, there's nothing to stop that place being a sort of a centre of commerce and art and culture. It, it has like, I mean, it seems to me, now maybe I'm going overboard, but I was just thinking the contrast between the city that I was in and the people I was talking to and their ideas. Yeah. It's one of those little gems in Ireland that we, we don't appreciate. Yeah. But we digress, John. We digress. We do. Let us go into the world of economics. I want to do 
a little retrospective about this year that's about to pass, 2022. It seems to me... Looking forward to it passing, I have to say, yeah, John's, 2022... John's, is, had a, John's had a bad year. Yeah. Well, luckily, you have old mates to help you out. Indeed, of this, Mark, to help indeed you, I do. And you have Khalid the surgeon to help you out. So all is good. All is good. But it's been a very strange year, not just in people's lives, but in the world of economics, in the world of finance, in the world of politics, in the world of sociology, in the world of geostrategy, right? And what I want to do is I want to look, and I, again, I'm informed by Ezra Pound, which I typically... Uh, Indeed, yeah. yeah. I'm always informed by Ezra Pound, except he did end up being a fascist. It wasn't a good, wasn't a good move. <laughs> it wasn't a good third late career move for our Ezra. But before he became a fascist, he was a huge, huge supporter of James Joyce, which is why we like him, yes. okay? But he also said something about the year 1922. And he said 1922 was the year the modern world began. Not only the year the modern world began, it was kind of the year the 20th century began. Right. right, yeah, yeah. And so he said, things that went before that, like the Great War and all these things, were legacies of the 19th century. And then you have this moment and you have this change. So if you're listening, I just maybe ask you the question to, to think about, is 2022 the year the 21st century actually begins? That everything that went before it was a sort of a naive inheritance of the last few years of the 20th century, so the Berlin Wall coming down, the rise of China, Russia coming into the Western world, all that sort of stuff, right? Kind of like the reorganisation. Yeah. And then now it starts. And now it starts. Yeah, so you yeah. Did, yeah exactly. So there's been, the, the cards are thrown in the air at the end of the 1990s, 1980s. The world recalibrates. We begin to look at the new world and we assume things are going to be fine. And then this year happens and we realise, shit, yeah. this is the new world. Yeah. So that's the question I have for you. And if you're having a walk or you're, wherever you're listening, you know, you may, even in whatever country you're listening in, you know, maybe contemplate, you know, is this last 12 months sort of a pivotal moment where the world shifts onto a different trajectory? What do you think, Mike? I think, yeah, I think that there was definitely an age of naivety and innocence that characterised the first two decades of this century. And that typically also happens. Yeah. And I think that our presumption about how the economy works and about how the world works and about how all those big issues, right, the way in which countries behave with each other, the way in which technology works, yeah. all those big issues, yeah. seemed to me to be assuming sort of blue skies, that everything's going to be fine. Mm. And now I think we've woken up and realised, shit, that's it, not how the world works. And in fact, you know, the fusion, if you think of the fusion of technology, demography and politics as the three big issues, yeah. here, uh, it strikes me that we're in now a totally different set of assumptions about the way the world actually works. But, but it's interesting. I mean, the way I see it, if I just take a quick scan backwards yeah. over not just 22, but, you know, in the just in the run-up to 2022, there was kind of the emergence of just a handful of really big characters and personalities that changed an awful lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, from Putin to Trump to Xi to... Elon Musk. Il well, yeah, but even yeah. Elon Musk and all no, these Zuckerberg kind of characters. and all those kind of characters, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That are kind of driving all of them, their own particular agendas. All of them awful And they're people. all clashing. All of them awful people. Awful people. I do, by the way, speaking of Elon Musk, I'm going to take a photograph of what I have at my bedside tomorrow. Huh? He tweeted out a photograph oh, yes, right. of a fucking toy gun 
Diet Coke. I don't know if that was a toy gun, actually. Or maybe a real gun. <laughs> yeah. No, but yeah, these, these characters have come to, together. But in a way, they also woke us up to the fact that those type of unidimensional megalomaniac type characters. Yeah. Ex- what I would describe as extreme maleness. So if you know the spectrum of, of our world, you know, we've got feminine traits, we've got masculine traits. Yeah. Everyone has. These guys seem to be like extreme males. Like yes. if you were to actually imagine a toy doll male like Ken and Barbie, these Kens are like <laughs> extreme males, right? Yeah. And uh, let's hear it for the slightly more feminine males like ourselves, okay? <laughs> the more in our feminine the side. gentler sort. Gentler, kinder, more open, prone to giggling late in life, which is always a good sign. <laughs> but let us go, speaking, speaking of gentle and kind people, let us go to India. And let's talk about this idea with Sonny Kapoor, one of the great brains in economics and political analysis, I believe, in the world. Mm. He's in India visiting his elderly mother, I think, at the moment. Let's go to Delhi and talk to Sonny. We were talking about the flavours, the sounds, the smells of India. John and I have both been to India and it is an assault on one's Absolutely senses. Absolutely, it when is you, When gorgeous. you arrive in India, it's just, everything is different. The light is different. The smells and the sounds of India are sometimes completely yeah. overwhelming. Sonny, how are you? Are you overwhelmed? I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I always take a few days to acclimatize, but I've now been around for a couple of weeks, so not overwhelmed anymore. But it is, it is, it's always an amazing feeling. I think, I think certainly when people who are not used to India arrive in yes. India, it's that... You th- might, on which note, I think you're about to hear sort of Indian street drums any second. Oh, brilliant. There's a Delhi state election, I think, today or tomorrow and there's all these canvassing parties with you know bhangra style drums walking up and down the street all the time fantastic well, we, I- we might get you to put the, the mic outside the window just get a flavor of it well, well actually this 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 might go over your head but i'll tell it because irish audiences will know this uh, i will recognize this speaking of elections right so irish elections are hilarious okay in terms of every weapon that is deployed to try and get the punters out in the street. And a couple of years ago, during one of Ireland's elections, I found myself in Killarney, which Kerry people will probably uh, disagree with me, but it regards itself as the capital of Kerry, right? So it's a big town in Kerry, big, big tourist town. And we have a bizarre... In Ireland, we have family dynasties. And I know you have that the same thing in India as well, like the Gandhis and, you know, all this sort of thing, right? But the family dynasties, typically in <laughs> oh, a family God. dynasty, there is a patriarch. You guys had matriarchs. There's a patriarch who's maybe quite impressive. But then as the, as the DNA gets fainter and fainter away from the patriarch, the sons, grandsons and great-grandsons are considerably less impressive. But they trade on the family name. And one of those families, which doesn't have this patriarch story, is a family called the Healy Rays in <laughs> Kerry, right? This is a proper, proper political mafia. And I say mafia in the broadest sense of the word, okay? Not in the criminal sense, but in the broadest sense of the network, okay? And I was in Killarney a couple of years ago, waiting for the train in Killarney. And the train in Killarney goes from the Great Southern Hotel. So I was standing outside the hotel waiting uh, for the Dublin train. And I saw a Fiat Punto, Mm-hmm. circling around Killarney, right? Yeah. Two max, massive megaphones blaring yeah. out of it was, it was a, a Jackie Healy Ray election campaign. Yeah. But it was the match of the day team. 
And it just went around and around and around. And every time there was a beat of the music, like I felt like it was like it was like Kamsi for Jimmy Hill, except it was actually the Heaney Rays. So we know all that stuff. Anything goes in Irish elections. But I think the the Indians and the Irish are similar at far too many levels, right? Yes, yes, we 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 are. We we're we're fun and warm and warm and like far too many of the other you know, peoples we know, right? <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. No, yeah. no, we, we're... I have to head back after three weeks here. I, ha- I have to head back midweek to, to Oslo. And, God love you. Know, you. Three weeks sort of assault on the senses, the kids getting a hundred kisses a day to, you know, sudden sort of two meter <laughs> interpersonal distance <laughs> and everything being bland, including the food, especially the food. Uh, it's it's, it's going to be quite a di- different contrast. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's true. As a Norwegian mate of mine said to me, we were talking about the pandemic. And I said, how's it going? He said, no, it's absolutely fine. And I said, why? He says, because we're social distancers anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so the Finns are worse. So, so with Finland, the joke was, only one meter? <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry, let's talk. Let's talk, let's go from Killarney, Mumbai to the world. Okay. 2022, what have we learned? Bizarre year. It seems to me it's a significant year, and we've learned a lot. From your perspective, where would you take it? Whew, uh, well, let's start perhaps with you know the defenestration of central bankers and you know we've seen this sort of very almost sort of pompous attitude building up in central bankers together with some you know fairly embarrassing you know nearly hagiographic sort of biographies of you know various central bankers you know paul walker and of course um, you know alan greenspan of all people right and, and so particularly over the past two decades, and since the GFC, the great financial crisis of 2008, central bankers have taken on an ever-increasing role in our society, in our economy, in our financial system. And to be fair to them, it's not something, you know, so it wasn't that, you know, they were hungry for power and they were out there aggrandizing all these things. It's just that, you know, as the guardians of monetary policy, where, you know, money can be printed instantly, interest rates can be changed instantly with, you know, macroeconomic effects, together with the fact that, you know, there is sort of no messy politics to have to bother with, parliamentary majorities for changes to tax or fiscal policy, et cetera, right? So they were the quick reaction force to a lot of the problems we found ourselves in from, you know, banks near failure, you know, panic setting in the financial system, governments being facing, you know, extortionary borrowing costs and so on and so forth. And they stepped up to the task. They stepped up to the challenge, you know, somewhat reluctantly in the beginning, I think. And I think that's another thing we should come to, you know, power corrupting. You know, I've seen this happen personally to a number of central banker friends of mine. You, you drink the Kool-Aid. You believe right? your own propaganda. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, right? And, and there's everybody sort of fawning over you. And if, if you just counted the number of column inches that have been, you know, devoted to the worship of Mario Draghi, for example, right? Yeah. I mean, frankly, you know, if I were Mario, you know, I would have built a temple to myself by now, right? I mean, he's, he's 
he's made of, you know, he, he's more sane man than yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah, he's the, he's, the, he's the Cristiano Ronaldo of central bankers. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Except he's not, luckily for us, you know, he ha he's not behaving like Cristiano Ronaldo <laughs> yet. Right? Yeah. But he's been treated like him, right? And, and so it got to their head. They started believing their own rhetoric. And at some point, I think, you know, they started becoming sort of less and less reluctant about taking on an ever-increasing role. I don't think, you know, there was anybody who was actively seeking it. And so they ended up, you know, within this sort of 15 years, playing a far, far, far larger role in our society, economy, financial system than had ever been anticipated at the time that they were given, you know, the narrow inflation mandates, which was the flip side of being given operational independence, right? Yeah. So you then ended up in this situation where they claimed credit for what has been, you know, very benign era of, of low controlled inflation, no matter what we did in the West, how much money we printed, whether growth was fast or slow, whether there was a crisis or not, you know, inflation stayed very low. And of course, the question and the lesson we've learned now is that it wasn't the central bankers that were responsible for, you know, this low inflation, benign sure. environment in the past several decades. It was China's arrival into the WTO. It was the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was the near doubling of the workforce engaged in global supply chains that kept price levels controlled and low. And so they now find themselves in this very awkward position where they are increasingly in the spotlight. There's more and more column entries being devoted to them, except they're not flattering anymore. There's people questioning their competence openly, and there's more and more talk of politicians gaining, regaining control and sort of challenging independence. So uh, that sort of demigod status of the central bankers has flipped in 2022 into something where they are, I, I would say, you know, they're, they're not quite being demonized yet, but I think, you know, a few months down the line, it wouldn't be surprising if they were suddenly demonized. And there is no easy way out of from where they are. I think you've a, it's a fantastic point. By the way, the, the Indian election cycle has just kicked off. I can hear the drums in the background. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, that's great. The, the, Jackie, the Jackie Healy Rays uh, <laughs> of this world are out there with their match of the day themes. But interestingly, because I'm talking to you from India, to what extent are the central bankers the Brahmin caste of the modern world? They are like the educated Brahmins. And they have a caste position between, let's say, the king and the merchants and all these power plays. And they're actually like modern day 21st century Brahmins. It, there was the assumption within sort of, you know, let's say the, the Brahmin class that there was self-denial, self-control, noblesse. Precisely. Oblique, yeah, yeah, precisely. And, and, and wisdom and, and knowledge and understanding the scriptures and interpreting the Lord's world and making it human. It always strikes me that they're, they're I speak as a former central banker, a former Brahmin, OK? But it always, <laughs> it always struck me as going to meetings for yeah. example, at the Eurogroup, I was only a bag carrier, I was only a kid, right? But you'd go and you'd observe, when you're like in your 20s, you kind of, you watch the world go by. And I thought, okay, what's actually going on here? And I remember then uh, reading about the Brahmins and thinking, to myself, this is it. This is the modern day Brahmin class, or caste even. 
It, it is, it is not completely. Uh, the sort of question there is there have been, you know, so many instances of the, you know, folks within the Brahmin class, broadly defined, starting out as, you know, well-meaning, you know, sort of uh, ascetic folks with the interest of the of the hoi polloi, the people at heart, right? But again, you know, within the community and you're isolated from the real world and you talk only to other Brahmins and you start to think differently, right? Yeah. And in that sense, and, and you know, I'm no, in no way comparing central bankers to, you know, Xi Jinping. Oh, I like but, it. But, I like it. Let's go there. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe just a little bit. But, but you know, I mean, history is completely replete with examples of people being corrupted by power. And the more power you get, the more distanced you are from any kind of criticism, from the lives and challenges of ordinary people. And the easier it gets to surround yourself with, you know, similarly thinking yes men or people in the case of, you know, authoritarian regimes, people mysteriously fall out of windows. Yep. Just to remind you, we're talking about lessons learned in 2022. Major lesson for global economics is that central bankers, A, have feet of clay, and B, may well risk going into a period where the renationalization and the politicization of central banks becomes a thing again. Absolutely. And again, you know, they're half to blame for where they find themselves, but but the other half is the is the timidity of politicians who are unwilling to take politically difficult decisions that, of course, have large distributive consequences, put more and more power in the hand of central bankers. And nowhere is this, you know, more obvious and stares you in the face than the Eurozone, where by construction, you know, the ECB can make quick macro significant decisions on the one hand, if similar things, even if better done from a fiscal perspective, needed to be made, it would need the agreement of 17, 18 fractious countries that all have domestic parliaments, often thin majorities, to try and make. And and so everybody always took the easy route. And the ECB ended up with, you know, far, far more power than had ever been anticipated. So in that sense, you know, while I don't like the Germans griping about the ECB all the time, but, you know, there is a legitimate gripe to be had. You know, in the original discussions, the ECB was never meant to be as all-powerful as it has ended up being. No, absolutely. And and I I remember, again, in my bank-carrying days at at, at Central Banks in the the 90s was during the Maastricht Treaty preparation. And again, as a young fellow, I always thought, this is very bizarre. We have technocrats, of which I was a junior one, making major, major decisions about monetary policy, about exchange rate policy, about interest rates, about the banking system. Real, actually the most material part of economics, which is money and decisions about money. And this was happening in the assumption that we would all follow the Germanic model of the Bundesbank. We would cleave ourselves away from the political economy and we would run things independently. And I remember thinking to myself, this thing has got the potential to be extremely interesting, but it's also got the potential to be profoundly undemocratic. Because yeah. the, the, if you look at the history of money, money is the state and the state is money. 
and this is this is a lesson that our crypto friends have begun to realize right now that in actual fact <laughs> you know the state prints money because it is the pouvoir it's the power and when you Absolutely. when you take the state away and the political economy away from money it becomes extremely dangerous for the yeah. individuals that are making the decisions in the event of a crisis of some sort and i think what we're looking at now is that crisis is staring us in the face and if we leave central banking what else do you think we've learned i mean we don't we don't take two big themes because it's far too much for any one podcast to do the whole thing but something else that jumps out of us from 2022 in your hierarchy of issues what would it be well i mean let's stick on the topic of defenestration for now since we started up there yeah. So, so the second sort of big thing has been the defenestration of, you know, Xi Jinping and Putin, right? I mean, remember again all the, I mean, it wasn't uh, fawning in the same way as it for Mario Draghi, but, you know, quite flattering profiles of Putin playing three-dimensional chess, the master statesman, you know, not with a benign motive, but, you know, some of the commentary actually sounded as if you know people wanted someone like that to be leading a, a democracy right and and the rug has been pulled from under that narrative in a way that there is no going back and again you know up until sort of the the beginning of the year even after russia invaded ukraine and you know which in in fairly early days was demonstrated to be a huge strategic mistake facilitated and brought about by exactly you know power getting to their head and the complete absence of any dissenting external voices in the inner circle of these dictators xi jinping still had that going for him right that that again he was you know playing his cards right and whether you liked him or not and you know many people outside don't but at least you know he was sort of omnipresent omnipotent omniscient yeah, you know yeah. He's in pink, right? And recent events, and, and some of this was anticipated, you know, China's failure to mandate vaccines, poor track record of sort of, you know, vaccinating the, the elderly, an acute shortage for a country of, you know, 1.4 billion people of critical care beds. I think there's only a few hundred thousands of those. And, you know, a very authoritarian sort of COVID zero lockdown policy. At some point, there needed to be an exit, right? And so it had been anticipated, you know, in external commentary that there was no sensible exit possible till and until he, he changed, he mandated vaccines, imported mRNA or, or something else together. And they didn't do it. And, and we're now seeing the effects of that. So for the first time, you know, since he came in where he has gathered and gathered and gathered more power, gotten rid one way or the other of all challenges and consolidated, you know, more power than any other Chinese leader has had since Mao. He seems vulnerable and that aura of competence yes. has been stripped away. And it's it's almost like, you know, both with, with, with Putin and with Xi, it, it's like a belief in God. Right? So, so when I was a kid, I used to believe in God. And then, you know, I started sort of studying science and stuff. And at some point, while I was still, I, I might have been 10, you know, <laughs> that belief disappeared. And it's, a, it's like a crack in the mirror, right? I mean, and there were times in my life, including when I was depressed, you know, bad things happened. 
every time I thought I had hit rock bottom, you know, rock bottom slipped from under me. Yeah. And I just really desperately wanted to believe in something. But yeah. no matter how desperately I wanted, I couldn't start believing in God again, right? And, and it's similar with that. I mean, after what has happened, after 2022, it, it's impossible for me to see how the aura of competence will come back to Putin or Xi, no matter what they do. And I think that has huge implications for, for, of course, Russia and China and the domestic population and situation for the outside world. But also, you know, it's, it's a very healthy reminder to everybody in the world that this is how all dictatorships always end. You know, this is the yes man trap. Sonny, I'm going to leave it there, but you've, because you've actually thrown up all sorts of discussions that John and I will mull over mm. now. But Absolutely. it's extraordinary. Sonny, what I love about the way you think is that you're able to actually bring the world to us from what looks like a bedroom in the centre of Delhi. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty, listen, enjoy... With its own soundtrack with as its well. Own soundtrack. Enjoy India. I know that the trepidatious trip back to Oslo is putting the fear of God into you. It may well turn you back in to a God-believing creature up in the atheistic <laughs> Norway. Well, listen, we will talk to you in the new year. Sonny, great stuff. Lovely to talk to Wonderful, you. Wonderful, my friend. So nice to speak to you. Cheers. <laughs> I love the music. It was brilliant. I know. It has its own soundtrack and everything. It's, great. <laughs> it's fantastic. But, Sonny, he was talking about, is it the end of competence or the... He was talking about the defenestration. The defenestration, yeah, uh, great word. Great, of, of, of reputations. Yes. And that's really a fascinating, fascinating idea, which is that, I mean, the, the Xi and Putin stuff yeah. is fascinating for a variety of reasons, but I think the... The central bankers. That, that's Like yourself. The former central banker, <laughs> the Brahmin. No, I, like, there's a fascinating book by a guy called David Priestland, right? Right. And it's about, it's a history of power. And he makes the point, and it's a very interesting point, that power in the world has been fought over by three major, major sources of power. The first are the kings, the aristocracy, so yeah. historically. The second were the merchants, the business people, right? And the third were what he calls the, the sort of priestly or Brahmin class, yeah. which started thousands of years ago, right, as people who interpret, their power came from interpreting the liturgy, the word, storytelling, God, proximity to God, okay? They were the elevated people. But he says, and this is an interesting, that that class hasn't gone away. It's morphed into the technocratic class, right? Yeah. Okay, the civil servant class, the central banking class. And he, told, he describes them as caste. And he, he, in some way, sort of, they said they resemble the Brahmins in India, right? And so if you think of the Indian caste system, you've got, yeah. I think, five major castes of which the Brahmin are very, very much at the upper end, and they are the priests, the wizards, yeah. the druids, yeah. the people who derive their power from scripture, from understanding the world, the people who tell the story of the nation. And he says that over time, that class has changed and they're now the technocrats. So they're still a priestly class. They involve themselves in very, very high levels of education. So they tend to be uberly educated and... You know, certainly I remember when, when I was a kid in, in, in the central bank, that class was very, very much, and very removed. So a bit like sort of a Vatican class. If you'd imagine it in the Irish mm. context, mm. they're the priests. 
These are the priests of the technocracy. They're secular priests and they explain the world to the people. And in the same way as religion in Ireland and all over the world was shattered by the arrival of science, this class may well be shattered by the fact that they don't have all the answers. And I think that's a fascinating way of looking at things. It's brilliant. It's, I think it's fascinating, actually. But let's, let's actually get into this after we pay a few bills. Ah, yes, indeed. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's interesting, when I was in India way back in the, way back in the 90s, yes. I spent a lot of time actually on the other end of the scale with the outcasts. With the Dalits. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Way off in the mountains in the sandalwood forests in Tamil Nadu and totally different thing. But then there's also the kind of the Brahmin class in the cities that are, they're not necessarily the wealthy people no. either. No, they're, but they're, they're the intellectual class. Yes, yeah, yeah. Like the university professor class. And, and I, I found those very interesting. They, there was a snobbery to them as well. Massive snobbery. Yeah. There's no snobbery like Indian snobbery. Yeah. And they're, <laughs> true, fucking, true, and they're, true. they're, they're, they're off the scale snobs. Yeah. Like they make Dublin Four right, <laughs> look like a, a sort of a socialist commune in terms of embracing <laughs> the otherness of people. No, it's, it's unbelievable. The Indian snobs are great. Yeah. They're really, yeah. really. Outstanding snobs. <laughs> so, come here. To, uh, speaking of the Brahmin caste, yes, but within the the financial, but within the financial world, yes. Yeah. So, 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 what Sonny is saying, I think, it's very interesting, is that over the last forty years, there's been a gradual increase in the areas in which the central bankers have got their fingers involved. Right mm. now, 
so if you think the, the history of monetary policy, okay, the recent history, in the last 50 years, right? After the 1970s and the inflation of the 1970s, there was a huge movement that said, hold on a second, in economics, that as long as politicians are involved in monetary policy, because in the past, central banks were always subservient to politics, right? Mm. As long as the politicians are involved, what will happen is always going to be a weakness for printing money, right? So, for example, in Ireland in the 1980s, although we never said it, we monetized our debt. The central bank actually printed money and gave it to the state, in right. effect, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, made, they made legitimate huge amounts of borrowing, right? There was a huge intellectual movement in the 1970s, which was to say that the only way in which we will have low inflation, this was in a period of high inflation, mm -hmm. is to have profoundly independent central banks who are legislatively independent for politics, right? And this goes to the root of the battle for power in society because I've always believed, as I said to Sonny, that the state is money. Yes. And money yeah, is yeah, the yeah. state. Yeah. So what you got was the Brahmin class, to go back to our Brahmins, they decided to assert themselves, the central bankers, and they agitated for complete independence from politics. And because the legacy was high inflation in the 70s, it was like an open goal. The sort of goal that even Lukaku would score. <laughs> Poor old Lukaku. Ouch, ouch. I feel so sorry for him. I feel so sorry for him. I mean, how can a, a striker miss so many yeah, chances? Yeah, you yeah. Know? I feel sorry for Belgium, but of course, given that I'm half Croatian, really, in effect, <laughs> I'm delighted for Croatia. Actually, my Croat mates with a WhatsApp group in our, 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 our football team. Yeah, how did that go down? Our football team in Croatia is called Devit Nogu, which means nine legs, right? Because we're so bad, okay? <laughs> right? And Devit Nogu's WhatsApp group, they all sent me straight away after Croatia beat, or after Croatia just got away with their skins. Yeah. Massive photographs of Lukaku in a Croatian football jersey. <laughs> he said, he's one of us. Did you see him boxing the, uh, I know. the thing? And the, the whole thing came down. Well, speaking of open anyway. goals, so the central bankers... Sorry, there will be a little bit of digression to football, yeah. but it is the work. So I'm, I'm trying to hold them back. I'm trying to hold uh, them back. The central bankers managed to convince the politicians that the only way we'd have low inflation is if they became independent and ran monetary policy, i.e. interest rates and exchange rates, mm. for themselves. The most extreme example of that, of course, is EMU, where not only did the central bankers manage to get away from political... It's the European Monetary Union. Yeah, was basically, so the Maastricht Treaty, this was all yeah. part of this intellectual movement, was to give central bankers enormous, enormous powers. Enormous powers, right? Now, they're technocratic, they're unelected, they're Brahmins. As Sonny said, they can be very remote. There's a, there's a, there's a Brahmin conference called Jackson Hole every year, right? Yes. Which is not what you think, right? Yeah. And it's where central bankers meet in a place in Wyoming, right? And it is like the Vatican. Like, it's right. like the Vatican. It's, it's like, you know, in the Middle Ages, all the bishops used to meet in various different places. Yeah, and they have yeah, the yeah. Treaty of Trent and this, that and the other, right? Yeah. And they interpret the scripture. Yeah. And they figure yeah, out yeah. where Catholicism and Christianity was going. Same sort of carry on. So all the central bankers arrive. They all tell, you're great. No, no, you're fantastic. No, you're brilliant. You're brilliant. Blah, 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 blah. As long as inflation was low, nobody questioned. Mm. Now inflation is taking off. People are saying, okay, you fellas, now what are you going to do? And of course, we realize that inflation is not just about monetary policy. 
Inflation is not just about printing money. Inflation is not just about interest rates. It's about energy. It's about population. It's about politics. It's about democracy. It's about everything, yeah. right? The pendulum swinging from wages to labor and labor to capital, all that great stuff, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Brahmins look exposed because it's clear now that central bankers have only one instrument at their disposal, mm. and that is to precipitate a recession to bring inflation down by high real interest rates. If you look at Jay Powell, even this week, they're kind of freaking out because they realize the only way American inflation is going to come down is if the Fed puts real interest rates up to 6 7%, right? A la Paul Vocker. Mm. Politicians are saying, hold on a second, are you saying that the only thing you can do is cause huge economic hardship in order to bring down inflation that you told us you could look after. Well, we spoke before about, you know, one of their their aims is to actually create unemployment. We spoke about that before. uh, But can I just ask you, though, that over the last month, inflation globally dropped, albeit very slightly. So is there one instrument? Is it actually working? And are they using it to good effect? Well, it is. It's fascinating. So team transitory in the thing. So there's there's team permanent and team transitory. Right. Imagine the World Cup, right? Yeah, and yeah, team yeah. transitory are the people <laughs> who, like me, believe that inflation is a cyclical phenomenon and it'll actually fall. Mm. They are now, and I mean, it's too early to say, but they are now waving the flag saying, look, we told you so because inflation is beginning to peak, or at least some of the headline indicators yeah. suggest that inflation is beginning to peak. And if inflation comes down without a global recession, which could happen, yeah. then the central banker's credibility will go right back up. Right. right, even though the truth is that they have very little to do with it because inflation is largely an energy-driven issue at the moment. Right, right, but they'll claim it. They'll claim it. Yeah. Right, yeah, okay, yeah. okay, like Bernanke getting the the Nobel Prize. <laughs> yes. Right, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Central bankers are very, very good at claiming success yeah. and rejecting failure. Of course, yeah. You know, so, so for example, we had we had a massive. Banking crisis in Ireland. Yeah. The Central Bank in Ireland said, well, well it wasn't our fault. <laughs> yeah. It was Sean Fitzpatrick's fault. Or, yeah, exactly. Or your man Twin, who was on yeah. the telly last week. But look week. at us now. We're look doing terribly now. well. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what Sonny is saying, and I think it's very fascinating, is that if you think, and we'll probably end here, if you think of economics and policy going in big mega cycles, so not year on year, not quarter on quarter, not even, but over decades, one of the very clear consequences of the fall of the Berlin Wall, of the end of the Soviet Empire, of the emergence of China, all that sort of stuff, was the reduction in global inflation. Why? Because you had a doubling of the international workforce Mm -hmm. with the Chinese coming into the game, right? That cycle is now over, right? Yeah. And everything that went along with that cycle, one of them was the independence of central banks, is over. And I wouldn't be surprised if one of the great policy battles of the next five or 10 years is politicians wrestling back control of the power of money from technocrats. And it's that great battle between the politicians being the aristocracy. Remember I talked about the king, the Brahmins yeah. and the merchants, yeah. right? So it's that great tripartite battle between the king, who are the politicians, the Brahmins, who are the central bankers and the technocrats and the civil servants, yeah. and the merchants, which is the real economy and how the world works. And we recalibrate and away we go again. 
How are you doing there? It is December. It's Christmas time. It's Christmas present time. It's a present to yourself time. <laughs> it's time for patrons who are our favourite people, John, the people who actually pay they us. Indeed, to, to, absolutely. To, to get out of the scratcher and do all this. So on Patreon for all of December, it's a 10% off annual fee for you. And of course, you know what you get. You get economics. You get ad-free you get chats, I answer your questions, you've got economic courses, the courses I give at Trinity, you've got book lists, you've got the whole lot, all on Patreon, all for the price of, is it a pint, John? For a pint, and do you know what? It makes an amazing present. It makes an amazing present. So it's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Support us, we'll support you. Who doesn't like that, do you? Oh, ho, ho. ho. 